gives me great pleasure to welcome you all tonight, and especially Professor Joel Bainin, who's going to give us a paper entitled High Risk Activism and Popular Struggle Against the Israeli Occupation of the West Bank. My name is John Chowcraft. I'm an associate professor in the government department. I've worked on the Middle East. I work on labor, migration, and contentious mobilization. Uh, we'll, uh, Joel's going to speak for about 50 minutes, then we'll have time for Q&A at the end. If you'd be so kind as to switch off your phones, that would be, we'd be very grateful. Uh, it's really a pleasure to welcome Joel Bynin here tonight. I've been admiring his work since I was a callow youth entering graduate school in the early 1990s. And uh, so really, uh, I'm delighted he's here. He's here for, I mean, it's the flagship event of 2014 for this research network that um, uh, we've established out of the Middle East Center called Social Movements and Popular Mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa. It's a research network. If you want to join, if you have any kind of sustained research interest in contentious mobilization or social movements or forms of resistance in the region, send me an email. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 and if you want to join the listserv, etc. But uh, Joel is the Donald McLachlan Professor of History and Professor of Middle East History. He received his... Uh, his he, had a, he was at Princeton, he was at Harvard, he got a PhD from the University of Michigan in 1982. He taught Middle East History at Stanford. He's been teaching there at Stanford University since 1983, so a better climate than here. He did tell me, how many times have you been invited back to Harvard since you were there doing your MA in the early 70s? Wasn't it one time that we... Yeah. <laughs> Harvard is a very conservative institution. So he also served between 2006 and 2008 as the Director of Middle East Studies and Professor of History at the American University of Cairo. He was the President of the Middle East Studies Association of America in 2002. And he's done, you know, probably more than anybody to, in a, to do sustained research on the history of workers and peasants. He's also worked on minorities and, more recently, different forms of contention in the Middle East and North Africa. And he's worked uh, in a sustained way for many years on the uh, uh, Israel-Palestine conflict. I mean, he has a whole string of books and articles. If I just mention some of the highlights... The book that he co-authored with Zach Lockman in 1987, Workers on the Nile, uh, about the labor movement in Egypt. Uh, the book he co-edited, uh, The Intifada, The Palestinian Uprising Against Israeli Occupation. Uh, another book he wrote, he published with the University of California Press in 1998, The Dispersion of Egyptian Jewry, Culture, Politics and the Formation of a Modern Diaspora and a seminal uh, a, a survey of the history of workers and peasants in the modern Middle East that he published in 2001, a more recent book on workers' rights in Egypt, and finally he's published, and it's run to a second edition now, a book called Social Movements, Mobilization and Contestation in the Middle East and North Africa, which he co-edited with Frédéric Verrel. So um, who better to, to, to you know, bring that weight of experience and so on to a very particular uh, case study. So let's thank Jill Bainin. Uh, and turn over the floor to him. Uh, thank you, John, for that lovely introduction. I rather wish you hadn't mentioned when we first met each other. <laughs> sort of puts me out to pasture almost, I think. But I don't <laughs> want to go out to pasture anyway. Thank you all for coming. 
Um, what I'm going to do this evening is pose a case study as a test and discussion of an argument that my Stanford sociology colleague, Doug McAdam, first made, which was to make a distinction between normal political protest activity and what he called high-risk activism. The case that he worked on was the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project of 1964. Hundreds of mostly white northerners went to Mississippi that year to register African Americans to vote and to teach in freedom schools. On June 21st, three project volunteers, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner, were shot dead by the members of the Ku Klux Klan, a fascist, racist organization, if you're not familiar with it here in Britain, although you've got analogs. Uh, and this uh, grimly highlighted the risks that their activities uh, entailed. McAdam argued that four factors explain recruitment to high-risk activism. First, attitudinal affinity, that is, ideological affiliation with the values of the movement. Two, integration into activist networks, meaning friends and acquaintances in the movement. Three, a prior history of activism. And four, the absence of personal constraints on participation, for example, being young and single. Of these, the most significant was integration into activist networks. This might be formulated as who you know is more important than what you believe. Sharon Erickson Nepstadt and Christian Smith termed this a microstructural explanation for political activism. And most of what I'm going to do now is to uh, argue against any form of structural explanation. They are among the few who have attempted to elaborate on McAdam's conclusions and to test them in other contexts. Nonetheless, ultimately, Nepstadt and Smith remain wedded to a structuralist version of network theory and the traditional categories of social movement theory that prevailed until the publication of McAdam, Tarot, and Tilly's book, Dynamics of Contention, in 2001. That structuralist version of social movement theory nonetheless <coughs> continues to prevail, despite the trio's auto-critique presented in that volume. And I think the reason for that is largely that uh, it's simpler than, than uh, what uh, uh, Dynamics of Contention proposes. Uh, I propose that while ideological commitment is a necessary component of high-risk activism, it is not sufficient. And I agree with Nepstadt and Smith that McAdams' explanation for engaging in high-risk activism is at least incomplete. I differ from McAdam and several of his critics uh, in arguing that while previously existing political networks sometimes contributed to launching an initial protest, sustaining high-risk activism depends on the social relationships formed in the course of struggle, not prior to engaging in high-risk activism, as McAdam suggests uh, in his 1981 article on the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project. Sharing intense emotional moments of fear, victory, and defeat, facing violence together, these are the most important motivators in sustaining high-risk activism, and especially in the transition from moderately risky to high-risk activism. Unlike structural explanations, such an argument cannot be tested by quantitative research, so I rely on the typical historian's tool of analytical narrative. 
The International Solidarity Movement, ISM, consciously invoked the precedent of Mississippi Freedom Summer by designating its 2002 campaign of Palestine Solidarity Action Freedom Summer. This invites testing McAdams' conclusion in the Palestinian context. Protesting the occupation in any form has always been a high-risk activity for Palestinians who who have and continue to be regularly tear-gassed, beaten, tortured, incarcerated, and been shot dead or wounded by Israeli security forces. Therefore, the new phenomenon to be explained is the participation of Israelis and internationals in qualitatively new ways involving high risk. Not only social reprobation, which was always a factor, but arrests, trials, tear gas asphyxiation, other forms of severe physical discomfort, serious bodily injury, and in a few cases of internationals, death. With the outbreak of the Second Intifada in September 2002, the modalities of Palestinian resistance to Israel's occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip changed. On the one hand, military action by a minority of young men upstaged all forms of social uh, other activism. On the other hand, construction of a separation barrier in the West Bank, known as the apartheid wall in Palestinian parlance, prompted an unprecedented level of engagement of Israelis and foreigners with Palestinians and I emphasize under Palestinian leadership and initiative in grassroots protests known as popular resistance in the Palestinian political lexicon. This engagement continues, though it is weaker than it was at its high point from 2002 to 2005, which is the period I'm examining here. From its inception, this activity was perceived by many Israelis and foreign volunteers as moderately or highly risky. Why did Israelis, a large proportion of them, teenagers to 30-somethings from comfortable middle-class families, hardly any of them Arabic speakers prior to their activists' careers, engage in such activity along with Palestinians and internationals in the face of escalating Israeli repression? The answer to this question begins with events in the West Bank village of Jayus near Kalkilia. In September 2002, Jayus became the first Palestinian village to begin regular protests against the separation barrier whose construction Israel began three months earlier. Israel occupied about 20% of Jayus's lands after the 1948 war. They are located on the west side of the Green Line, that is the 1949-1967 armistice line. The trajectory of the separation barrier put 75% of Jayus's remaining lands, including its most fertile land, all its irrigated land, seven wells, and 12,000 olive trees on the western side of the barrier, that is to say, effectively uh, annexed by Israel. In order to work their lands west of the barrier, farmers had to apply for permits to pass through the barrier's agricultural gates, which were only scheduled to open for one hour three times a day. In Jayus and many other villages, the Israeli army has often delayed opening or failed to open the gates altogether. Many farming families who who did receive permits were unable to renew their permits or were given permits for fewer family members than were required to do all the agricultural work on their land. Sharif Omar, known as Abu Azam, is the leader of the Jayus Land Defense Committee and the largest landowner in the village. His loquat trees, his most valuable crop, are all located west of the barrier. 
Abu Aizam recalled that when villagers first learned of the trajectory of the barrier, quote, people burst into tears. Some fainted. Jayus's 3,000 residents depend almost entirely on agricultural income. So this means a loss of our livelihoods, dreams, hopes, future, and heritage, unquote. Since Abu Azam was a member of the Fatah party, he had access to Palestinian authority officials who gave him the names of Palestinian contacts, but no practical assistance. Abu Azam also called on Yaakov Manor, an Israeli Jewish member of Ta'ayush, Arab-Jewish partnership, and I'll explain a little bit later on what that is exactly, for help. Ta'ayush and several other Israeli organizations and internationals mobilized to participate in demonstrations against the separation barrier at Jayus. Abu Azam warmly welcomed the participation of Israelis and internationals. He proudly referred to Lisa Nesson, one of the members of Bay Area Jewish Voice for Peace, which is now a national organization whose executive director is speaking at King's College as this, at this very moment, uh, who went to Jayus with the ISM as my daughter. Lisa and others spent several months in Jayus. One Israeli, Nirit, recalled her time in Jayus, hosted by Abu Azam. This is a long quote, but worth it. I was in Tel Aviv visiting my family when I got a phone call from a Jewish-American colleague in Jayus with the ISM. You have to come here, he said. They want Israelis to come. I could not fathom how that could be true how the people of Jayus could welcome us, people of the nation who were seeking time and time again to destroy them. But I went anyway, knowing that I would have to go there to understand. I was struck by the sight of what at first appeared to be a kind of mirage, winding across the hills, separating the village from its land. But it wasn't a mirage, it was a wall, curving like a venomous snake, threatening to poison anything in its path. So I joined the people of Jayus at a demonstration and held a sign reading No Apartheid Fence in English and Hebrew. Within only a few hours in Jayus, I felt as if the whole village had come over to introduce themselves and invite me to their homes. And then my host took me to the roof and in fluent Hebrew, acquired over more than 20 years working in Israel, pointed at the lights in the distance, Netanya, Chadera, and Tel Aviv. He asked me if people in Tel Aviv know what is happening in Jayus. Tell them to come here, he said. I will, I promised, with a heavy heart. Later, back in Tel Aviv, I was asked about Jayus. You should go there and visit them, I said. They want you to come. It is not time yet, some said. We are afraid, said others. You are crazy, I was told. One afternoon, I asked my host why he wanted the Israelis to come to Jayus. We and the Israelis have to live together, he said. How can we live together if Israelis don't know what is happening to us? Abu Azam chose the path of popular resistance and joint struggle with Israelis because he envisioned a future of living together with them rather than separation. As he wrote in USA Today in August of 2003, when construction of the barrier at Jayus was nearly complete, as a father, I feel pain when my children are hurt. I have the same feeling for Israelis. I don't want to cause them pain. Peaceful resistance also avoids giving the Israeli military justification to kill more Palestinians. I hope peaceful protests will leave a positive impact on Israeli soldiers and strengthen our partnership with Israeli peace groups. I don't even want them to build the wall on the Green Line because it will truly be an apartheid wall, preventing the development of understanding between our cultures. It's so important for us to find one language for peace. As Nirit indicated, many Israelis considered the West Bank a dangerous place, and they still do. 
Her friends in the Tel Aviv bubble, as it is known, told her, we are afraid you are crazy. Before arriving, she could not know how dangerous her visit to Jayus might be. In fact, the demonstrations involved no arrests or injuries to Israelis or internationals, despite the threats of the police to arrest them for trespassing. Nirit felt completely safe during her visit. I spoke to her some years afterwards, so this is how I know this. Abu Azam, Nurit Ben-Ari, and many other participants in similar actions over the following years were motivated by a desire for peace based on Palestinians and Israelis living together. This is a radically different vision than what most of the so-called Israeli peace movement advocates. Labor Zionists have advocated separation between Jews and Arabs in Palestine since the early 20th century. In 1992, the Labor Party election campaign slogan was, us here, them there, peace with Rabin. Former Prime Ministers Yitzhak Rabin and Ehud Barak often used this phrase, comparing the peace they sought to a divorce. The positive attachments Abu Azem, Nurid Ben-Ari, and many others like them experienced were based on the hope that a shared, not a separate future, could be built. The fact of Palestinians and Israelis engaging in unarmed protest against the occupation regime provided a glimpse of what a shared life based on equality might look like. It was empowering, joyful, and liberatory. I suggest, therefore, that there is an important affective element motivating high-risk activism for both Palestinian and Israeli participants, and also, by extension, internationals. In what follows, I discuss several cases of joint struggle, elaborating on the argument for an affective component to moderate and high-risk activism. But before doing so, it is, it is helpful to appreciate the broader context. So back to the map. Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin first discussed the possibility of constructing a separation barrier between Israel and the West Bank in 1992. And he appointed a commission to examine the possibility of constructing a barrier in 1995. Prime Minister Ayyad Barak promised to build one before leaving for the July 2000 Camp David summit, which of course failed. Barak partially fulfilled his promise by approving construction of a barrier to block the passage of vehicles in some northern and southern regions of the West Bank in November 2000. Coming from the opposite end of the Zionist political spectrum, the national unity government, led by Barak's successor, Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, authorized the construction of the West Bank separation barrier on June 23, 2002. Sharon embraced the concept of separation only after reluctantly realizing that it was demographically impossible for Israel to annex the entire West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which he had built his career on advocating, and remain a majority Jewish state. Labor Party member and Minister of Defense, Benjamin Ben Eliezer, attended the groundbreaking for the barrier near Kibbutz Gibat Oz, an exemplar of labor Zionism. About 85% of the barrier is inside the West Bank, that is east of the Green Line, the border between Israel and the West Bank from 1949 to 1962. About 95% of the barrier consists of an elaborate system of electronic fences, patrol roads, and observation towers constructed on a 300-meter-wide path where possible. About 5%, mostly around Kalkilia and Jerusalem, so near Jayus, consists of an 8-meter-high concrete wall. In mid-2012, 439.7 kilometers of the barrier, or 62%, were completed, and 56.6 uh, 56 kilometers, or 8%, were under construction. 
Another 211.7 kilometers were planned, but for budgetary reasons, construction had not begun. Uh, and most of it is probably not going to happen. Uh, but on its current trajectory, the barrier would enclose about 9.5% of the West Bank between it and the Green Line and completely or partially isolate another 3.4% of the West Bank, so total uh, annexation of about 13%. All Israeli proposals for a negotiated resolution of the conflict envision annexing the Jewish settlements and at least some of the Palestinian agricultural lands to the west of the barrier. The area between the Green Line and the barrier <coughs> is known as the Seam Zone. It has been a closed military area since 2003, functionally detaching it from the West Bank and annexing it to Israel. Dozens of Palestinian villages just east of the Seam Zone have engaged in popular resistance protesting the barrier's isolation or confiscation of their agricultural lands. This resistance has consisted of daily or weekly demonstrations, efforts to physically stop bulldozers from digging the foundations of the barrier, people chaining themselves to olive trees to prevent them from being uprooted, cutting the barrier open, climbing on and shaking the barrier in sections where it is a fence, and painting graffiti on sections of the barrier where it is a concrete wall. Israelis and their nationals have participated in all these forms of protest. Beginning in Jayus in the fall of 2002, village-based popular committees initiated and led popular resistance to the construction of the separation barrier with support from Israelis and internationals. These mobilizations did not rely on the Palestinian Authority or political elites, although they occasionally did offer assistance and attended some, not too many, demonstrations. Affiliations with political parties sometimes provided access to networks facilitating mobilization, but in no case was local action the result of a decision by central party bodies. Local popular committees often initiated contacts with other villages to exchange information and tactics. They also sometimes approached political elites to recruit them to their cause. On many occasions, large numbers of Palestinians from outside a given village along with Israelis and internationals, were mobilized to participate in demonstrations or other actions. Local villagers led the movement and in most cases formed the majority of the activists. With the halt in the construction of the wall towards the end of 2005, demonstrations became smaller in most villages. But in others, like Nabi Saleh and Beit Omar, demonstrations continued over appropriation of land by settlers a regular aspect of the occupation unrelated to the separation barrier. Adopting the rural example, popular committees in Jerusalem neighborhoods threatened with annexation like Sheikh Jarrah and Silwan also organized popular resistance with support from Israelis and internationals. Demonstrations in Silwan in particular have often involved violent confrontations with the settlers and police. Many people have been injured, Palestinians have been shot, uh, and so on. Each village was not surprisingly primarily concerned with its own lands. The local focus of mobilizations, the massive repression of the Israeli security forces and its network of collaborators, the fragmentation of the Palestinian political community, and the reserved attitudes of Palestinian elites in Ramallah were all obstacles to formation of a coordinated movement throughout the West Bank. 
The Palestinian Authority has been largely uninterested in popular resistance to the barrier. Abdel Nasser Marar, one of the coordinators of the highly successful mobilization against the barrier in Budrus, complained. The Palestinian Authority has lapsed in its responsibilities toward all the villages in the entire West Bank. Right now, whatever efforts the PA makes are focused on Bil'in. And I'm not going to talk about Bil'in today because it begins after the paper ends, but if you want to ask about that, that there are particular reasons why that's the case. Not a single PA official came to Budrus when the wall was being constructed. It wasn't until Budrus started a march to the Palestinian Council of Ministers in Ramallah that we were able to talk to an official. He acted as though he was doing us a favor by talking to us or holding a press conference. The PA just doesn't have the interest. The PA didn't help at all. As a result of the Israeli army's reoccupation of the major cities of the West Bank in the spring of 2002 and the destruction of much of the physical and logistical infrastructure of the PA, its capacities were severely diminished. However, a PA with more capacity and similar political characteristics would probably not have dealt differently with the village-based movement. The PA has a ministry for the wall and settlements. Beginning in 2012, both the PA and former Prime Minister Salam Fayyad attempted to coordinate, many would say co-opt, village-based popular committees who had formed competing alliances. But the PA has never regarded grassroots resistance as a significant element in its political strategy. The characteristic attitude of PA officials was expressed by the governor of the Salfit district, Isam Abu Bakr, who, speaking from his rather posh office, told me, the struggle against the wall strengthens our position in the negotiations. During the first stages of popular resistance and, and joint struggle against the separation barrier in 2002 and 2003, the risk of participating in such actions increased gradually for Israelis and internationals. In contrast, for Palestinians, the outbreak of the Second Intifada in September 2000 led to a dramatic escalation of violent repression. In October 2000, Israeli police shot dead 13 Palestinian citizens of Israel in the course of unarmed demonstrations expressing solidarity with the Second Intifada. The events of October, as they are called, led to the formation of Ta'ayush, Arab Jewish Partnership, a direct action group which undertook moderately risky activism by organizing Palestinian, Arab, and Jewish Israeli citizens to deliver food, medicine, blankets, and other supplies to villages in the West Bank under siege by the Israeli army. These actions brought Jews, including some who had never been there before, to the West Bank while a low-level armed struggle was underway. However, the caravans were well coordinated with village councils or popular committees. Only rarely were serious injuries associated with this activity. There were arrests, but charges were usually dismissed or minor. The regular <coughs> militant protests by Palestinians, Israelis, and internationals against the separation barrier eventually resulted in the Israeli army deploying tear gas, stun grenades, pepper balls, scream machines, rubber-coated metal bullets, and live ammunition to disperse demonstrations. The innovation of the period of the struggle against the separation barrier after the fall of 2002 demonstrations at Jayus was the death of two foreigners and the serious injury of perhaps a dozen Israeli Jews and foreigners. 
In the same period, the Israeli army killed over 20 Palestinians and wounded hundreds in unarmed demonstrations. On March 24, 2003, construction of the separation barrier began at Masha, a very small village of about 1,800 in the Salfi district of the West Bank. The settlement of Elkanah, built on Masha's lands in 1977, lies just west of the village. The villagers of Masha were faced with the prospect of losing regular access to over 90% of their 6,000 dunams. A dunam is about a quarter of an acre, which would be on the western or Israeli side of the barrier. When construction of the barrier began, Nazih Shalabi, a volunteer with the General Committee of the Land Defense and a member of the Palestinian People's Party, which is formerly the Communist Party, and who lost access to 120 out of his 125 dunams, contacted the last Land Defense Committee and uh, Palestinian People Party members in Salfi. Shalabi, unlike Abu Azam and Jayus, had no prior contact with Israeli or international activists. Through the contacts of the Palestine People's Party, many Palestinian, Israeli, and international groups were invited to attend the first demonstration against the barrier at Masha on March 29, 2003. Shalabi and the Palestinian left quickly emerged as the driving force behind the popular resistance at Masha, which the PPP then had nothing further to do with as an organization. A large demonstration of perhaps 500 people on April 5th ended with pitching two tents on what was projected to be the western side of the barrier. The tents became the center of the Masha peace camp. For four months, Palestinians, Israelis, and internationals maintained a constant presence at the camp, engaging in direct democracy decision-making about the course of the protest and disseminating information to the Israeli and international media. Hundreds of Israelis spent a night at Masha peace camp Many stayed for days or weeks at a time. The Masha camp was a socio-political incubator. Young, queer, vegan, animal liberationist, radical Israelis, both individuals and previously existing anarchist-style affinity groups, shared emotionally intense experiences with mostly like-minded young internationals and left-wing Palestinians like Nazir Shalabi, <coughs> who defied Masha's social conservatism and embraced the young radical. Some of the Israelis came from families with more traditional left political affiliations. Others made a very sharp break with the norms of their families. The willingness of young Israelis to establish relations with Palestinians based on equality was in some cases due to prior ideological commitments, even if they were vague. In others, it was an extension of attitudes and behaviors like support for animal rights, veganism, queer identity, and so on, that were already on the edge of the Israeli social consensus, but not at first linked to views about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the occupation. The unconventional cultural and social norms of the Masha peace camp and the leading role of the PPP members in it were used as a wedge by Fatah, Islamists, and others to attack Nazir Shalabi. Punk culture, anti-militarism, and the queer animal liberation, environmental, and anti-globalization movements all contributed to the formation of the group that eventually became known as Anarchists Against the Wall. The political influence and cosmopolitanism of the ISM were also factors. More than any specific political platform, 
anarchists against the wall, came to represent a nearly total rejection of Israeli political and cultural norms. Some future anarchists against the wall members had experience with the Ayush or milder peace organizations like Peace Now or Peace Block Gushalom. However, the intimate relations they developed with Palestinians and internationals and four months of intense political debate and social and cultural exchange moved them far beyond what other Israeli organizations had been prepared to do in solidarity with Palestinians. Rather than verbally supporting Palestinian rights, planning and attending demonstrations, providing material aid, each of these successively higher risk activities, they sought to engage in joint direct action under Palestinian leadership. For some, learning to speak Arabic was a natural consequence of spending extended periods of time in Masha and other villages and coordinating political activity with Palestinians. The first joint direct action planned at the Masha peace camp, the first joint direct action was planned at the Masha peace camp. On July 28, 2003, about 150 Israelis, 35 Palestinians, and 35 internationals cut the fence at Kafr Anim. Five ISM volunteers were wounded by rubber-coated metal bullets in the action, one seriously enough to require evacuation to a hospital. But, as Jonathan Pollack recalled, the presence of Israelis imposed some constraints on the army's use of force. Quote, there were rubber bullets and there was tear gas, but there was no live ammunition and no one was seriously injured, unquote. Going to the hospital for Jonathan, not too serious. Anarchists Against the Wall was the main Israeli group in a similar action at Zabuba, a small village of about 2,400. One-fifth of Zabuba's 10,000 dunams was isolated behind the barrier. On November 9, 2003, the anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, about 100 Palestinians, Israelis, and internationals marched from the center of the village to the separation barrier where they removed a 20 to 30 meter section of the fence before the eyes of perplexed Israeli soldiers. The most active Palestinians in the Masha peace camp, though they tended to be on the left beforehand, deepened their commitment to what we might call a humanist internationalist outlook, although their capacity for further action was much more constrained than that of the Israelis. The tent worked well. I loved it. I loved it more than my own home. Those four months were the best time of my life, recalled Nazir Shalabi, even though they were bad times for my family, because the Islamists accused him of adultery and so on. Nonetheless, Shalabi had no illusions about what the Masha peace camp could accomplish. We, the Masha farmers and our supporters, knew from the beginning that we could not stop the wall in Masha or remove it. But we wanted to show that the Israeli people are not our enemies, to provide an opportunity for Israelis to cooperate with us as good neighbors and support our struggle. Our camp showed that peace will not be built by walls and separation, but by cooperation and communication between the two peoples living in this land. At Masha camp, we lived together, ate together, and talked together 24 hours a day for four months. Our fear was never from each other, but only from the Israeli soldiers and settlers. Hani Amr, another of the prominent Palestinian activists in Masha, whose home was entirely surrounded by a fence with a locked gate, had a similar combination of idealism and pessimism in explaining his motivations. He spoke at a gathering in Salfi and said, 
I am not here because the wall damaged my house and my family. I am not here because I am Palestinian. I am here because I am a human being who wants the best for humanity. I understand that nobody can stop the wall, but at the very least, let people say in the future that it did not pass without resistance. Nazir Shalabi's assessment of what should be feared was entirely correct. On August 5th and 6th, the Israeli army forcefully shut down the Mashab peace camp. Over 70 Palestinians, internationals, and Israelis were arrested. The camp was demolished and the tents were confiscated. On August 13th, the area of Masha camp was declared a closed military zone. Nazir Shalabi was arrested and detained for three days. Despite its failure to stop the barrier, the Masha camp established a successful model for mobilization of activists and media outreach. The peace camp built a website, which is unfortunately no longer up, and provided an alternative source of information about conditions at Masha and elsewhere in the West Bank that was further amplified by ISM and Indie Media. During the summer of 2003, there were other peace camps in several villages across the northwest districts of the West Bank. In early 2003, the scale of repression directed at internationals, especially those organized by ISM, escalated dramatically. The emblematic persona of this new phase is Rachel Corey, who arrived in Palestine as an ISM volunteer in January. On March 16, 2003, she was crushed to death in the Gaza Strip city of Rafah by an armored caterpillar bulldozer while she was trying to prevent the demolition of a Palestinian home. On April 5th, Israeli Army automatic gunfire severely injured Brian Avery, another ISM volunteer in Janine. On April 11th, an Israeli sniper shot Welsh filmmaker Tom Herndall in the head in Rafah. He went into a coma and died of his wounds 10 days later, 10 months later. Ori Gordon suggests that this escalation in the Israeli Army's use of lethal force sent the ISM into a crisis reducing the number of volunteers it could mobilize and creating a vacuum which was partially filled by young Israelis who coalesced as anarchists against the wall by the end of 2003. Whether or not Gordon's explanation is correct, and I don't know how one would count, although we should, um, this is what Doug McAdam succeeded in doing, this does correspond with the period of the consolidation of anarchists against the wall. However, during the second half of 2003, the anarchist affinity groups formed at the Masha camp were unwilling even to adopt a consistent name. The leaflets and press releases they distributed were signed differently each time. The Masha group, Jews against ghettos, and so on. Anarchists against the wall, Anarchistim Neged Hagader, happened to be the signature on a leaflet distributed on December 26, 2003, when the group returned to Masha for a demonstration. The gate in the fence at Masha was supposed to allow farmers access to their lands, but it had been closed for the previous two months. A bus full of Israeli activists traveled from Tel Aviv to the outskirts of Masha, where they were joined by other Israelis, internationals, and Palestinians coming from the Der Balut peace camp, including the mayor of Der Balut. In the center of Masha, they met with about 100 village residents. Then all of them marched toward the separation barrier. Internationals and Israelis in the front, so that the army wouldn't shoot, Palestinians in the rear. Gilna Amati, a member of Kibbutz Reim, which is on the border of the Gaza Strip, 
had been released from his three years of compulsory military service only weeks before and was attending his first demonstration. He was in the front ranks of the Israelis and internationals who approached the fence. Some began to shake the fence, others used wire cutters in an effort to tear it down. There was no threat to the Israeli soldiers on the other side of the fence. Nonetheless, they began shooting live ammunition into the air without issuing any verbal warning or attempting to use non-lethal measures to disperse the demonstration. Minutes later, the soldiers again fired live ammunition and hit Gil twice in his knee and leg. An ambulance arrived to evacuate him, but the soldiers refused to open the gate to allow it to proceed to the hospital by the shortest route. By the time Gil arrived at the hospital, he was in critical condition due to severe blood loss. The Israeli media and liberal public opinion were shocked by the shooting of Gil Naamati, especially because, quote, television footage showed soldiers taking aim at the protesters from approximately 50 feet away, despite clear appeals to the soldiers in Hebrew not to shoot. It was the first time an Israeli Jew had been targeted by forces meant to protect Israelis from Palestinian terrorism, unquote. Gil was foremost among those shocked by the shooting. From his hospital bed, he announced, I was in the military, and I am familiar with the rules of engagement. What I did was not even close to something that I think would warrant opening fire. It's unbelievable. While the Army High Command and right-wing government officials predictably defended the Army, high-profile liberals like former Chief of Israel's General Security Service Ami Ayalon and Merit's Party luminaries of Shalom Dilan and Yossi Balin publicly stated that orders to shoot unarmed protesters were illegal, and should have been disobeyed. An editorial in Yidiot Achronot, the largest circulation daily newspaper in Israel, correctly noted, let's not kid ourselves. If a Palestinian had been shot, it probably would not have merited even one line in the newspaper. After the shooting, Jonathan Pollack, one of the Israeli coordinators of the demonstration, gave testimony to the police regarding the circumstances of the shooting. Then, despite promises of the police that he would be released afterwards, he was arrested. Although he would reject the designation of leader, Pollock was among the most persistent of the youth who had been engaging in a joint direct action with Palestinians since the Mashab peace camp. The uproar among liberal Israelis over the shooting soon subsided. Naamati himself disappeared from the activist scene, in my judgment because of PTSD. The most significant long-term consequences of this bloody event was the consolidation of Anarchists Against the Wall as a formal group. Anarchists Against the Wall happened to be the signature on the leaflet they distributed on the day Gil Naamati was shot. It received prominent media attention, and the group subsequently adopted the name. After organizing a demonstration against Naamati's shooting in front of the Ministry of Defense, the focus of Anarchists Against the Wall activities turned to the village of Budrus. Participation in the struggle there further crystallized the identity and forms of practice of anarchist against the wall and consolidated the alliance between Palestinian popular committees and Israelis and internationals. Demonstrations against the construction of the separation barrier began in Budrus, a very small village of about 1,500, on November 11, 2003. From then until December 28, there were nine protests in which one resident was killed, 300 injured, and 28 arrested. No one from the traditional media attended the demonstrations or reported on them. Unlike at Masha, the Budrus Popular Committee included representatives of Fatah, Hamas, and other political factions, 
heads of youth clubs, school directors, and the heads of nine village councils in the area. The committee established three principles of unity. One, it would not exclude anyone. It needs to recruit all of the possible means for the popular struggle against the wall. All of the people and factions have one aim, to resist the occupation. Two, the wall would be challenged by steadfastness, samud, that is, not by armed struggle. Three, the committee calls for a new popular intifada, another term indicating rejection of armed struggle, which would impose new strategies on the resistance movement. The four Murar brothers, Ayyid, Naim, Muhammad, and Abdel Nasser, led the movement in the early days. Ayyid, known as Abu Ahmad, subsequently emerged as the principal leader and the leader of a coalition of popular committees from the nine surrounding villages. On December 29th, three days after the traumatic events at the Masha Gate, the Budras Popular Committee organized a demonstration of about 500 village residents, that's a third of the population, and a few Israelis, among them Jonathan Pollock. They succeeded in stopping the bulldozers that had just begun to dig the foundations of the barrier at Masha. After the demonstration, Pollock sent an urgent message to the Masha camp mailing list asking them to come to Budras the next day to help villagers stop the bulldozers again. A relatively large number of Israelis and internationals came to demonstrate in Budros the next day, including a Swedish parliamentarian who was arrested. Two internationals reported, this, at this moment, one of the most well-beloved activists in the village, Abu Ahmad, shouted, we can do it. The villagers broke up into three groups and started running down the hill towards the bulldozers. The soldiers immediately started firing tens of tear gas canisters at the different groups before opening fire just minutes later with numerous volleys of rubber bullets. When the group of small girls were gassed, they took only seconds to recover their breath before marching forward again down the hill. The sudden arrival of three television crews startled the soldiers. In that moment, an old woman broke through the line and ran at the bulldozer. Different groups started getting around the soldiers. The soldiers recovered their composure speedily and began firing tear gas canisters directly at people. But by this time, the woman had thrown herself into the hole being dunk by the bulldozer. A tiny girl, that's Ayyad's daughter, Iltizam Murar, who was 15 years old at the time, she's a little bit older in this picture, jumped into the bulldozer scooper as it came down to meet the earth and nonchalantly started reading her school book. Other girls started climbing all over the bulldozer and the driver turned off the engine. That day was victorious for the people of Budros. Although some trees had been destroyed, others were saved. And in the face of massive amounts of tear gas and rubber bullets, they had advanced down the hill armed with nothing but songs, forcing the soldiers and the bulldozer to retreat. There were nearly daily demonstrations for three months in Budros during which the Israeli army killed a 17-year-old Palestinian and injured nearly 300 others. Among the 33 people arrested were Ayyad Marar and two of his brothers. Due to the extraordinary persistence of the villagers, in March 2004, the Israeli government decided to move the trajectory of the separation barrier closer to the Green Line. According to the original plan, the barrier would have appropriated 1,200 dunams of Budrus' land. The new trajectory took only 176. Subsequent protest retrieved another 120 dunams, leaving only 56 confiscated. After only 56. After the first demonstrations in Budras and several nearby villages, 
Popular committees mobilized protest marches in several villages in the Jerusalem corridor further south and east along the trajectory of the barrier. There were also demonstrations in the Salfit region and in the Hebron district. The military response to the demonstrations in the Jerusalem area was exceptionally violent, perhaps because Israeli authorities are particularly insistent on maintaining control of greater Jerusalem. The late Tanya Reinhardt described a demonstration in Bidu in the daily Idiot Achronot. In response to the violence of the army, the women of Bidu called for a quiet and small protest demonstration of women only on Sunday, April 25th. About 30 Israeli women answered the call, women of diverse ages and from a wide array of occupations. In Bidu, we met with Palestinian women and with women from the international organizations active in the occupied territories. A quiet protest walk started. Less than 100 women carrying posters. There was no man in sight, nor children who could potentially throw stones. We constituted no threat whatsoever. But for the army, this does not matter. We will not allow this demonstration, a voice in a uniform announced. Tear gas and stun grenades directly followed. On June 30th, 2004, the Israeli High Court of Justice, Supreme Court, ruled that 30 kilometers of a 40 kilometer sector of the separation barrier in the Jerusalem corridor should be rerouted as there was no security justification for its trajectory. Consequently, these Palestinian villages regained a part of their lands slated for confiscation. But you can see that on the map. It's um, uh, sections that are dashed, which were uh, regained. However, ruling that one relatively small section of the barrier was illegal reinforced the Israeli court's assertion that the great majority of it is legal, a direct contradiction of the opinion of the International Court of Justice announced just several days later, and perhaps this was the reason for the decision of the Israeli court. So to conclude, Doug McAdams' argument that integration into activist networks is the key factor in recruitment to high-risk activism obviously could not apply to Gil Naamati since he had never before participated in a demonstration, could not have had very strong links to any activist network while in active military service, and was motivated primarily by his ideological affinity to the movement. Even though no one imagined that participating in the demonstration at Masha on December 26, 2003 was as high risk an activity for Israelis as it turned out to be, the army had already killed and severely wounded several international activists by then. The intense emotions generated by Gil's shooting and the media attention it received galvanized the resolve of many of those who witnessed it to engage in further high-risk action in Budros and beyond. Writing about Colombia, Luis Edgar Esparza suggests that, quote, rather than thinking of high-risk behavior as a gradual process, we might think of high-risk behavior as a suddenly abrupt change in the nature of one's construction of the world. Repression precipitates and even defines high-risk activism itself, unquote. Esparza agrees with Jeff Goodwin that, quote, state repression itself is a cause for grassroots mobilization, unquote. This is consistent with Yossi Bartal's account of his participation in the December 26 demonstration at Moscow. First of all, we always thought, we're Jewish. We're not going to be shot by the army. It just doesn't happen. <coughs> That's why there was so much media hype. <coughs> this was the day I understood, really, that the state was my enemy. The army is my enemy. 
I had been shot before with rubber bullets and tear gas, but that was my first time seeing someone being shot with live bullets. It made a lot of us realize that this army and this state are not ours. The arguments of Esparza, Goodwin, and Uri Gordon, which, who claims that this form of activism is difficult to sustain in the long run, are not necessarily contradictory. Sustainability has been an issue for both Palestinian and Israeli participants in joint struggle against the separation barrier and similar campaigns. To the extent that it has been overcome, one explanation is what Elizabeth Jean Wood has called pleasure in agency, the positive effect associated with self-determination, autonomy, self-esteem, efficacy, and pride that comes from the successful assertion of intention. The pleasure of agency is a collective experience, the pleasure in changing unjust social structures through intentional action. Moreover, this pleasure does not depend on actual success. It is about participating in a collective effort. This, too, is confirmed by Yossi Bartal's account of his participation in the Mas Hapis camp when, quote, young Tel Avivian people, punks, gays, lesbians, and transsexuals came to a village in Palestine. A new thing came about in the radical left. It was the first time we were meeting Palestinians daily and living with them. It was a new thing for Palestinians as well. This was really a place of dialogue. Out of this came a very close relationship between anarchist Jews and Palestinians. Responding directly to a question about his motives for joining in high-risk direct action and Palestinians' response to him, Jonathan Pollack expressed a similar pleasure in acting on a moral imperative. I choose to do it because I see it as my moral obligation. The occupation in general, and this wall specifically, is being constructed in my name without me wanting it. It is being constructed in my name, even though I think it's a horrible crime. And I see it as my obligation to do everything I can in order to stop it. My reception has always been very warm and very welcoming by the Palestinian side. It has never been a problem for them that I am an Israeli. If anything, the opposite. Both the Palestinians, as Nazir Shalabi recounted, the internationals, Israelis like Nirid Ben-Ari, who are not anarchists, and future members of Anarchists Against the Wall, like Jonathan Pollock, experienced the political awakening, the pleasure of dialogue, and the taste of the possibility of liberation through their experiences at Jayus and especially at the Masha Peace Camp. Their subsequent actions were at least in large part motivated by the desire to sustain and broaden these experiences. Repression and many other problems have taken their toll on the movement but several villages continue to organize weekly demonstrations in which Israelis and internationals participate. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much indeed for that. Raises all sorts of interesting and important questions. Um, we now have a moment where, yeah, those of you who can't stay can shuffle off, but we do have half an hour for Q&A. And um, when you do ask a question, we ask that you give your name and affiliation. Uh, and if you just, you know, there might be quite a number of you who do want to ask questions, so if you make one brief question, uh, then that makes sense. And if you, uh, if there are lots of people who want to ask questions, then if you give concise answers, uh, this is what we say to everybody. It's not just to you in particular. I will give concise <laughs> answers. I will give concise <laughs> answers to concise questions. And uh, Ribal has a microphone. 
and uh, the floor is open. Okay, gentleman in the middle over there. Hi, uh, Richard Millet. Um, why is it that uh, you did not mention at all the actual violence that was going on in the region at the time, the suicide bombings, Hamas, which is the highest risk activism, obviously. Uh, I don't know whether you approve of it or not. would be interested to see if you do approve of that kind of high-risk activism, which is suicide bombings uh, against Jewish Israelis. Um, why did you not mention this environment at the time, the reason the wall is going up? You give your reasons about uh, demography and stuff. But, you know, Israel, Israelis want security as well, you know. And they were being under a huge amount of bloodshed taking place in Israeli, Israeli town. So the talk you gave is lovely. And uh, the international solidarity movement that you seem to sort of adore, where the suicide bomber who went into Mike's place in 2003 and blew it up and killed many Israelis, stayed with the ISM the night before. None of this is actually mentioned in your talk. It's like a lovey-dovey talk well, where Hamas question? doesn't exist. Honestly, this is a controversial topic. If you use ad hominem language, it doesn't help. What's your question, please, sir? Why did you, say you, mention, why do you give a talk, a lovey-dovey talk like this and leave out 99% of the violence? Okay, thank you. Uh, Shall we take several? No, or let, me do, let me do at least that one. Lovey dovey talk. Um, <clears throat> so first of all, because um, I believe that this is the only possible future. Uh, I don't support Hamas at all. I certainly don't support suicide bombings. That's not the future. This is the future, so I think it should be highlighted. Okay, fair enough. All right, we have a question over here. <coughs> uh, oh, yes. Sandra also has a microphone. Uh, hi, my name is Jan. I'm an LSE student, uh, um, a student at the LSE government department, PhD student, sorry. Um, you, I'm, I'm slightly confused because you do mention both gradual introduction into high-risk activism and moral shock, basically, to use Jasper's term. Um, which one do you actually think at the end of the day is more important? Because the recruitment by, gradual, uh, by, by a moral shock um, then, in order to be sustained, necessitates um, the structures that you alluded to earlier that are built up um, um, progressively. So Esparza and Goodwin's argument, which I embrace, is that both things happen simultaneously. People had, for more than six months, been engaging in high-risk activism before Gilna Amati was shot. And it was the moral outrage over his shooting and then subsequent incidents like the one Tanya Reinhardt describes at Bidu, which was not nearly uh, as serious, but nonetheless, women being tear gassed and so on for marching in the street. Um, so the, the effect of extreme repression is to change your view of the world. As uh, uh, Yossi said, we realize this state is not our state, this army is not our, st our army, they are our enemies. That's a pretty heavy thing for Israelis to conclude. All right, this one there. <coughs> I think, uh, thank you for that. Okay, sure. Um, thank you for that. I thought it was an incredibly balanced um, presentation. Oh, well, thank I, you. What's I your name and affiliation, please? I did learn a lot from that. Um, <coughs> Oh, just a quick question, a short question, of course. Uh, why did the world stand... My name's Tamar. Why did the world stand by while the Israeli authorities erected a wall 
whereas we boycotted South Africa in the 80s? That's a very simple question with a very complicated answer. Um, first, fundamentally, there is a strategic alliance between the American Empire and the State of Israel that goes back to the mid to late 1960s. Um, American global hegemony after the demise of the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc meant that there's no counter to that. And Europe, frankly, is too chicken-hearted to challenge the United States on this question, even though its interests are much more directly uh, involved. Second, there is an enormously well-oiled Zionist propaganda apparatus and machine in the United States, which, in fact, uh, goes far beyond the Jewish community. The largest uh, organization uh, that lobbies for the state of Israel today in the United States is Christians United for Israel. It's an evangelical Protestant organization, but, of course, uh, the mainline Jewish uh, organizations are also uh, engaged in that. Uh, third, most Christian Americans see Israel as part of a story that they identify with. So Jimmy Carter, who after his presidency became very different than he was during his presidency on this question, very typical too, said, I first learned about Palestine by teaching Sunday school in church. It was a Baptist uh, lay uh, leader. So I knew the geography. Well, but that's an imagined geography, which certainly isn't the geography that Palestinians know and experience every day. So you have to go up against uh, a certain imagined reality. It is real, despite being imagined, and that creates a certain set of understandings and expectations. And I suspect that uh, evangelical uh, British people are quite similar. In fact, uh, uh, Sir Arthur Balfour, the author of the Balfour Declaration, was himself an evangelical Protestant who believed in, in these sorts of things. Finally, and this is perhaps the hardest for Palestinians to accept, uh, the State of Israel is in some measure a response to proper Western guilt over having sat uh, on their hands uh, while Hitler murdered six million Jews. Now, the Palestinians had nothing to do with that, uh, but they ended up being, as Edward Said famously said, the victims of the victims. That's not fair, but I think that is uh, a good part of the explanation. It's also why people, say, in American Congress, who have zero personal interest or connection to this issue, nonetheless feel, liberals I'm talking about, that the right-wingers, it's for different reasons, uh, nonetheless feel a, a strong commitment to Israel. Um, and they don't at all think that Israel is like South Africa. Mm. Thank you. All right, we have somebody at front here. Yeah, <coughs> Hi. Uh, my name is Sharifa. Uh, I'm from Egypt. Um, I have a question. Um, I believe that this is the answer, as you said. Um, and this is the solution out of the problem, but um, states continue to repress activism in general, and um, the media is not helping. So how do you see it as a solution, given all these constraints? So We can continue doing this, but it's not... Do you see it making any sort of impact? So 
Thanks. I spend a lot more time working on Egypt than I do on Palestine. And my rule about Egypt is I don't tell Egyptians what to do politically. I'm there. I listen. I try to interpret it as I can. Um, if they ask my opinion, I very reluctantly give it. I do not tell them what to do. Because my entire family lives in Israel, I take a somewhat different view of Israel and Palestine, but I'm not prescribing tactics and strategies. That's not what I'm trying to do here. Um, how will this kind of activity lead to a peaceful resolution of the conflict? I have no clue. However, if there will be a peaceful resolution of the conflict, the spirit that is demonstrated in these activities will have laid the basis for it. There may not be in my lifetime. Probably there will be in your lifetime because conflicts do end. So if people are going to live together, they, they, are, they have to build on some experience, some positive experience of doing that. And this isn't the only one. There are others. It just happens to be the one of the talk I just gave. Right. And there's somebody at the back there. Thank you. Um, I was interested in what you had to say about the resistance committees um, being quite separate to formal Palestinian politics. Um, and I wondered um, if you could say a little bit more about that, and especially um, in the context of sort of 10 years on from some of these protests against the war, particularly in the Palestinian case, um, have these people who were activists got more involved in formal politics? Since, since that experience, or have they continued with uh, more autonomous popular activism instead? So that's very complex, and it, and it touches on Bil'in, which is the one village that is best known for this kind of activity, but it uh, happened after Budrus, so it's beyond the scope of the paper, um, but in the larger research. Um, by and large... I'm pretty sure there is no exception. None of the leaders of village committees ended up uh, running for the Palestinian Legislative Council or in any way becoming uh, a, a national, if we can use that term, level uh, political figure. In part, that's intentional because they think the whole Palestinian Authority is corrupt, that it's essentially a subcontractor for the Israeli occupation, and I would largely concur in that assessment. Um, and most of the elites in Ramallah, there are exceptions. Uh, Mustafa Barghouti is one notable one, in my opinion. Uh, most of the elites of Ramallah uh, have contempt for peasant villagers. They don't think that peasants can lead a social movement or a national movement. They don't understand, even, that the rebellion of 1936-39 to the extent that it was a rebellion, was led by peasants. They don't know their own history. Um, it's not simple ignorance. It's class arrogance. So most of the activists, having experience that the elites don't lead, don't provide 
adequate support, come in and come out as it suits their purposes, want to keep the separation. But then some of the elites, Salam Fayyad in particular when he was prime minister, understood this is not good because Bilin has all this international attention and it has a good reputation and they're nonviolent and the world likes that and uh, some demonstrations in Bilin have had over a thousand people, perhaps even as many as five thousand on some occasions. And uh, for the Palestinian Authority to have nothing to do with this, it's not good. So he, okay, this is my interpretation, and this is a factionalized issue. He tried to buy off the Billion Popular Committee. And so then other groups started to organize. And that's one of the things that has weakened the movement. But much more fundamental is that the struggle against the barrier is over. Pretty much as much of it is good as is going to be built, has been built. It's budgetary rather than any other considerations which have determined uh, that the project end where it has ended. Um, and other measures like uh, pretty much uh, excluding Palestinians from the entire Jordan Valley have carried it forward. Um, so the, the political content of the demonstrations Several of the most important ones, particularly at Beit Omar and Anabi uh, Saleh, uh, which I mentioned, uh, is not against the, the barrier, which isn't near any of those villages. It's against the confiscation of their land by settlements, which is the much broader question. Um, so, and Israelis and internationals continue to participate in those demonstrations. And Anabi Saleh, they are extremely violent. I mean, just. I've been there a couple of times. It's unreal. Uh, so the political uh, point has shifted somewhat, but the elites in Ramallah are just as distant. Hmm. All right. Thank you. There's a question up there. <coughs> okay. My name is Wolfgang Deckers, um, and I found your talk very interesting, and I appreciate it. Um, my question is that you seem to be saying that um, there was this participation in different Palestinian villages, and you mentioned particularly Budros, uh, and there was, you said, I think, 30% participation in demonstrations. And you seem to be implying that this was very, very high. Um, and I'm wondering, why wasn't there 60%? Because it was an existential question, wasn't it? I mean, either you live or you don't live, or you live in Nablus or somewhere in the slum. Um, and why was there not more Palestinian participation? Because this was such a deep, important, existential question. I, even though the question is legitimate, I think we have to be very careful about standing in moral judgment uh, of the people of Budrus or any other village uh, on such a matter. I mean, first of all, um, 33% participation is quite high. I mean, there are very, very few uh, protest activities where the third of a population is willing to stand in front of armed soldiers and demonstrate. Second, half the population is women. And then a certain number are children under the age of 10. So some, and some proportion are very aged. So... I don't know exactly what those proportions all add up to, but a certain proportion of the village simply 
incapable of participating. Uh, then um, fear is very real, and not just fear of being tear gassed or shot, which is real enough and, and so on. But the Israelis take pictures of everybody. And once they know who you are, your life can be completely changed. You won't get a permit to go to work. You won't be able to leave the country. Um, all sorts of things that, that are quite consequential. People know this. It didn't start to happen just in 2002. It's been happening since 1967. Uh, and this kind of fear and a certain amount of collaboration, which is born of this fear, uh, do weaken the Palestinian movement. There's no doubt. I don't think that's special about the Palestinians. I mean, there were French collaborators with the Nazis in World War II. They took a long time to admit it, but there were. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so we have one over here, and then there's a couple, someone over there. Yeah. Hello. <clears throat> Hi, my name is uh, Faris Suleiman. I'm a graduate student here at the LSE, and uh, I want to ask uh, how you describe... Um, the involvement of Israelis in high-risk activism in the West Bank since the Second Intifada in light of the turn of Israeli politics further to the right in the last uh, decade or so? To a certain extent, it's a reaction against that. Ta'ayush didn't have a comprehensive political platform one state, two states, whatever, where the border should be, uh, anything like that. Taish was established in the fall of 2000 uh, as a response to the uh, harsh repression of the Second Intifada. Over a million bullets fired in 10 days before a single Palestinian fired a shot, according to Ma'ariv newspaper. And uh, the point was simply, Palestinian and Jewish Israeli citizens are going to work together to try to relieve the pressure that is being put on the people of the West Bank. And as things escalated, some Israelis and internationals with the formation of ISM said, that's not enough. We need to do more. So had there not been that extremely harsh repression of the Second Intifada, there likely wouldn't have been any suicide bombings, and there likely would not have been this movement because it wouldn't have been necessary. Mm. Right. Okay, we have a question from over here. Uh, my name is Harold Emanuel. Uh, I understood from your talk that uh, most, if not all, of the um, Israeli participants in uh, these extremely impressive uh, protests uh, were anarchists. No, not oh. necessarily. Mm. Uh, uh, oh. The most identifiable core group, maybe, but not a majority by any means. In that, in, in that case, uh, uh, I don't have a question because I was going to. <laughs> I was going to ask you what, what, what role you anticipated, how many there were anarchists uh, there were in Israel, in your view, and what role uh, you anticipated in a resolution of this conflict. But it's so I can tell you how many I think there are, although that's very difficult because one actually can't be a member of an anarchist organization. Um, so I, I, would, I would say that this is a network of no more than 500 people at its high point. Um, 
And a very interesting internal dynamic happened, if, if you'll permit me to go on a bit about this. Aside from Jonathan Pollock and Kobe Snitz, a PhD from University of Maryland who returned and started to play an important role in this movement, the great majority of the other leaders at the beginning were women. And the Israeli demonstrators did a flip of the macho militarism of the Israeli army because they, it, it became important how much you were willing to risk. And physical risk, which ultimately meant how fast you can run and all sorts of things that men are typically more able to do than women, uh, determined who is more important in the movement. And women had certain skills, particularly communicating with people, um, and the, the Israeli women uh, who were active at Budrus in the early period were fantastic in communicating what was happening to a very broad uh, audience. The fact that the TV cameras came the day that Iltizam Morar jumped into the bulldozer scoop was because of their activity, not because um, people had actually uh, stopped the bulldozer the day before, but they wrote a press release, a cold press conference, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of activity was devalued by male chauvinism. So a certain struggle developed in the movement. I mean, you have your own example here in Britain with the SWP. It's not quite that horrible. Um, but uh, that certainly weakened the Israeli component of this movement. All right. Okay, there's, there's, there's somebody here. Then, then there's Hi. Um, I wanted to ask you about the difference between South Africa and Israel because there are lots of parallels, um, and one of which is that Israel was a key, key supporter of apartheid. Uh, I'm from South Africa originally, um, and there were Israelis generals in, within, working with the South African army against the resistance there. Um, but there are, I think there are also crucial differences. And in, in South Africa... The, um, the, the the white majority depend white minority sorry depended on black labour. It's, it's an integrated economy. Whereas in Israel, I think that was in the beginning there was an integrated party, but there no longer is, from mm -hmm. what I can see. And the separation bar barrier is part of that process of separating people completely um, and and avoiding a peaceful solution or harmonious solution whereby people get on with each other uh, and I think so that's very crucial what's the question? It's well, do, do you agree with that? Right. So I, I, I definitely do agree that uh, one important difference between South Africa and Israel is that the South African economy depended on African labor especially in the mines but not only um, and consequently uh, there was no question of excluding Africans from the South African labor market. In the early years of the occupation, uh, a similar dynamic emerged in Israel, 
And this is one of the reasons that the occupation um, became popular. Previous to 1967, Jews from Arab and Muslim countries were at the bottom of the social hierarchy. Of course, below them were Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel. The occupation gave them a social promotion because West Bankers and Gazans came in and for lower wages even that they had been getting, worked in agriculture and construction, and so they became construction subcontractors, truck drivers, uh, open small businesses, and so on, and that became the core of the support of the Likud, and hence the continuation of the occupation once the Likud came to power after 1977. I mean, that's not the only factor of this, um, simplifying a little bit, but, but that's an important dynamic. Um, then, at a certain point, when Palestinian armed resistance became a more serious factor, so first in response to Israeli delays and violations of the Oslo Accords, there were some suicide bombings and other armed actions at that point. Um, not, not a very large number compared to what happened later, uh, but for example, um, when uh, the American Jewish settler gunned down Palestinians in the mosque in Hebron on February 28, 1994, um, and the response of the Israeli government under Rabin was to put a curfew on the Palestinians and not to in any way punish the settlers, and then the settlers go and uh, build a, a monument to this guy, which is still there the last time I saw. Um, this made it very difficult for many Israelis to imagine, oh, well, I'm going to employ Palestinians on my farm or as uh, construction workers. Um, and then the tendency towards separation began from then and intensified uh, much more with the Second Intifada so that today the majority of uh, uh, farm laborers are Thais and other South and Southeast Asians. Mm-hmm. In the last... Maybe since 2008 or so, uh, overlapping with the prime ministership of Salam Fayyad, who, who did everything he could possibly do to prove to the international community that the Palestinians are going to behave properly and uh, have good governance and have neoliberal economic policies and do everything you're supposed to do, and it still didn't get them anything. Uh, even though the Israelis, along with the Americans, agreed that the Palestinians had cooperated on security matters and so forth and so on. Um, So since then, the number of Palestinians who work in Israel has increased. Um, And it fluctuates uh, somewhere between 30 and 75,000 West Bankers now. It used to be over 100,000 from Gaza legally, plus who knows how many more illegally. But just last week, um, the Minister of Defense issued an order that those Palestinian workers are not allowed to ride on the same buses as Israelis coming and going from work because the settlers basically don't want to see their faces. So uh, it's not clear what the future of that order is going to be. It's been taken to court and so on. 
but for the moment, they can't ride on the buses, which makes it very difficult for them to get to work. So there's this dynamic is not finished with regard to Israel. You will have noticed, you're South African, you're free to compare anything you want to South Africa. I don't do that. I, I don't need that additional burden. I've said enough that's controversial um, <laughs> in its own terms. Um, um, I, I don't think this needs to be explained with reference to South Africa. Um, I would explain it as one of many settler colonial projects, which includes the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Algeria, Kenya. There is, is a scope for comparison, which doesn't particularly include apartheid South African style. That's one version of relations between indigenous people and uh, European settlers. Um, there are others. In some cases, the indigenous people have simply been annihilated. Um, in some cases, the settlers go home, like in Algeria. So there's a, whole, a range of possible ways that that dynamic can work. And Settler Colonial Studies is the name of a relatively new journal, and it's a flourishing field, and people should check it out. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, there's about five of you who want to ask questions, but we're out of time. We have to be out of here by 8 o'clock, so I'm afraid I have to uh, draw things to a close. But before I do, um, I do want to announce the next Middle East Centre lecture, which is Thursday the 6th of November, which is Dr... Aita Ahmed Mohanna of the Middle East Centre, who's presenting field research uh, on uh, uh, women's activism and, 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 and Islamism uh, in five Middle Eastern countries. That's upcoming. I wanted also to thank very much uh, Sandra Svea of the Middle East Centre and Ribal Sinaman Haider for organising this and doing lots of hard work. And finally, uh, well, to thank you, the audience, and Joe Bynum, the speaker. Thank you for coming.